Johnny sighed as he scanned his eyes over the room. The displays about the small town of Alderfield's agricultural history and the timeline of the local brick factory weren't exactly his idea of exciting. He sat slouched on a creaky little bench. Johnny knew his parents were probably still on the top floor of the museum. There was a collection of watercolors by one of Johnny's mother's favorite artists, and the family had stopped by the little museum in Alderfield on the way to the campsite. The last thing he wanted was an argument on the first day of the family holiday, so he kept quiet and hung around in the main room on the ground floor, out of the way. After all, what kind of 15-year-old wanted to hang around with their parents in a boring old museum anyway? Checking his phone, Johnny stood up from the bench to stretch his legs. There was still no data signal, so no chance of checking Facebook or the sports news. He still had 40 minutes before he was meant to be meeting with his parents. It was a humid, airless Tuesday afternoon in early July and the place was pretty much deserted, bar for a couple of quietly spoken old women. Johnny's white England football shirt was stuck to his back with sweat. The sickly haze of floral air freshener was starting to give him a headache, and the sun streamed in through the windows all around the room. Its glare caught on all the glass display cases. Johnny sighed. He couldn't wait until they got to the campsite, and he could kick his football about in the fields. Even putting up the tent in the burning afternoon sun with his father moaning about something every ten seconds would be more entertaining. Anything was better than sitting around in a stuffy museum, surrounded by a bunch of boring old tools and crumbly bits of pot. Johnny wandered slowly around some of the displays, peering into the glass cases and lazily scanning his eyes over the text. There were a couple of interesting things, like a small collection of fish hooks with their bright feathery flies and some old musket balls, but Johnny had finished looking at everything in the room in a few minutes. He pulled up a folded map of the museum out of his pocket of his shorts. The watercolor collection that his parents were looking at was on the floor above, along with an exhibition on the history of women's fashion and a display of local handmade jewelry. Johnny wrinkled his nose and looked at what else was around. The map on the ground highlighted the cafe, the toilets, and the gift shop, but everything else was just lumped over the vague label of exhibits. Scowling, he folded up the map and shoved it back into his pocket. As Johnny headed for the door, the sound of his trainers on the polished wooden floor felt suddenly intrusive, and he tried to walk as quietly as he could, shuffling down the corridor towards the cafe. Dark oil paintings and stained metal frames hung on the pale lavender walls above squat glass display cases. A glint of gold caught Johnny's eye. It was a great case of trophies standing proudly in a room on the right-hand side of the corridor. Anything sport-related was enough to catch Johnny's attention, and he wandered into the room. 
There were football trophies, gleaming, gold things with bright ribbons that hung from the handles. Elderfield FC, League Champions, 1965-66, read the engraved plaque on the biggest of the trophies. Johnny peered into the case to read the inscriptions on some of the others. Under 15S League Champions, 1962-63. Autumn Cup Tournament Winners, 1959. John Bradbury, Coach of the Year, 1958-59. There were others on the shelves below and in the next display case. Johnny raised his eyebrows. He'd heard the name of Alderfield Football Club somewhere before, but he didn't quite remember where. Perhaps it was something to do with this impressive collection of trophies. A signed football shirt was flat behind a glass frame in one corner, hidden from the glare. The rest of the room was covered in photos and newspaper clippings, with big white display boards, some now faded by the sun that streamed through the windows. A set of wooden seats attached to the wall caught Johnny's attention, standing out from the rest of the displays, and he headed over to them. Museum exhibit. Please do not sit on these seats. Read one sign taped above. Johnny looked at the seats more closely. There were three of them, rickety-looking wooden things. The seats folded up against the brackets, with the chipped metal frame holding them together painted in a dull red. Johnny touched one of them gingerly, pinching the seat with his thumb and index finger, pulling it down a couple of inches with a creak. The display board was next to them on the wall. Alderfield Football Stadium Seating These three surviving seats were formerly located in the West Strand of Alderfield Football Stadium, in row S. The West Stand had approximately 2,000 seats, many of which were destroyed in the stadium fire of 1968. Johnny stopped breathing. Fire? It must have been big one to destroy that many seats. Maybe there was more information about the fire nearby, thought Johnny. This was a museum about the town's history after all. And sure enough, there was a board a little further down the wall titled The Alderfield Stadium Disaster in bold black letters. And Johnny began to read. Steve? Suddenly asked a voice from behind. Johnny was startled, glancing away from the sign he was reading. A young man with short, curly ginger hair stood in the doorway. His face changed to one of embarrassment as his eyes met Johnny's. Oh, I'm sorry, stuttered the man. I was looking for my brother. He looked just like him from behind. I didn't mean to scare you. Yeah, well, you made me jump, that's all, Johnny said. Sorry. The man apologized again as he stepped into the room. Johnny went back to reading the sign, trying to find his place. Do you like it here? asked the stranger. Once again, Johnny turned around. The man was watching Johnny, standing awkwardly in the middle of the room by the display of trophies. 
Yeah, it's okay, said Johnny. My parents came for that watercolor exhibit. We're here on holiday for the next few days. On holiday in Alderfield? Chuckled the man. There's not much to do around here. As he smiled, Johnny saw that one of his front teeth was chipped. Johnny shrugged. Well, my dad wanted to come down here. There's a miniature railway or something nearby. He loves all that sort of stuff. We're going on a boat trip tomorrow, which pretty cool. Apparently there's dolphins. Oh, at Blackport Bay? Uh, I, um, I don't know the name. Johnny replied. Yeah, something like that. Are you from around here? I used to live down the road from here. I spent a lot of time at this museum. It's a nice place. It's uh, peaceful. The man was inspecting some of the trophies Johnny had been looking at earlier. I'm Ed, by the way, he added. I'm Johnny. I was just heading to the cafe when I saw this room with the football stuff, and I thought I would check it out. I could see that you like football. Want me to tell you a bit more about all this? Like a, like a little guided tour? Ed offered, looking at Johnny's football shirt. Johnny checked the time on his phone. He still had plenty of time before he was meant to be meeting his parents. Yeah, sure, why not, he replied. Well, I think it opened just after the war, about 1949, began Ed. It was the biggest stadium for miles. It's a little mining town, you see, Alderfield. All the miners and their families used to come to the games. I think even a couple of the players worked at the mines during the week. There's a few photos over here, Ed gestured over towards one of the displays. See, you could see how it used to be. Johnny looked over the pictures, smiling people waving striped scarves from where they sat in the great rows of tiered seating. Mustached football players with shirts tucked into their shorts. The place was in a right old state after a couple of decades. There were great blocks of seats roped off where they were falling apart in the north stand. They'd hire cheap builders, you see, a bunch of cowboys. The council did their best to fix the place up, but there was only so much that they could really do when it was the structure itself that was the problem. Ed was rambling away, pointing to things in the pictures. But we loved the place, us and Alderfield. There weren't much else around here, really. I mean, you could go down to Blackport and go crab fishing off the docks, but for the kids... Unless you liked wandering around the fields looking at sheep, there was sod all to do, <laughs> chuckled Ed. Johnny smiled. He knew the feeling. His own town for back home had nothing except the grubby old swimming pool. Ed told him stories of Alderfield Stadium, anecdotes about players and the fans, tales of last-minute wins and crushing defeats. Johnny was impressed at just how much he knew, as the pair wandered around the room. Well, what about the fire? Johnny asked awkwardly, embarrassed to interrupt Ed in the middle of one of his stories. Oh, Ed murmured, his smile fading. Yes, um, it was a real 
tragedy that there's photos along here they added a video too i didn't even realize they filmed it until i saw them there was a tv screen set into the wall surrounded by display boards showing silent footage on a loop a few flames that crept up in one of the back rows soon became great black plumes of smoke that engulfed the whole stand. Fire tore through the seats as fans scattered into the pitch. Johnny stood and watched the video in silence. People climbed over each other in panic, dropping children from the edges of the flaming structures into the crowds below. A hysterical little boy had his burning jacket torn from him as men pulled him from the smoke. It was so quick, murmured Ed. And a stray cigarette, too. That in just a few minutes. Everything was made of wood and... He shook his head and was quiet. The orange inferno continued to grow. On the grass, young men and boys waved to the camera skipping and showing off their scarves, oblivious to the scale of the disaster unfurling behind them. Thirty-three people dead, and the ones who didn't die all kinds of burns and, and the sort of injuries you can't see. Well, that's what happens after things like that. Ed paused between his words. Johnny could see tears pricking the corners of the young man's eyes. He didn't want to say anything. Maybe Ed had lost relatives in the fire, or perhaps the sight of something so important to this town burning was just too much to bear. Oh, I better get going. I didn't realize I'd been rambling on for so long, Ed said, clapping his hands together, startling Johnny as he stared at the looping video recording. I'm surprised my brother hasn't come by here. He's a funny little chap. Steve. Looks just like you. Same height. A few freckles. He gave a little chuckle. Ed walked over to the doorway of the room and peered both ways down the corridor. Steve? He called, still trying to keep his voice down. As he began to walk away, he glanced back inside. Hey, bye Johnny. He said with a brief wave. And then he was gone. There was another group of photographs next to the window that looked out over the museum's small garden. Another picture of a football team, much like the others Johnny had already looked at. The Alderfield football team on the day of the disaster. Center midfielder Brian Wilson later died of injuries he received in the blaze. Ten-year-old's friends, Anthony Sidmans and Paul Goodman, died of smoke inhalation when they became trapped in the toilets under the North Stand. A photo of two grinning schoolboys. Jeff Carter, age 27, lost his life in the fire. His infant son, Tobias, pictured. And brother-in-law, Ian Scott, who also attended the game, survived. A young man proudly showing off his baby. There were just over a dozen photos like that. Smiling faces and their accompanying stories of tragedy. Lives cut short back on that sunny afternoon in 1968. Edward Cunningham, 20, 
died as a result of injuries he sustained from falling debris in the West Stand. It is thought that Edward was searching for his younger brother Stephen at the time of his death, who he had become separated from during the fire. Stephen Cunningham, 14, a member of Alderfield's youth team, also perished in the disaster. There was a picture of a young boy who was the spitting image of Johnny. Below, a photo of a young man with short curly hair and a wide grin with a chipped front tooth. Oh, there you are, Johnny. I thought I'd said we'd see you in the cafe at 2.30, said Johnny's father from the doorway, an edge of irritation in his voice. Johnny checked his phone. It was only 2.35 p.m. Oh, um, sorry, he muttered, slipping his phone back into his pocket. Thoughts were spinning in his mind faster than he could understand them, and he stared, dumbfounded, at that one photograph. Goosebumps prickled on his skin as a bead of sweat rolled from his face and disappeared into the white fabric of his shirt. His eyes met those of Ed Cunningham in the grainy black and white photo on the wall in front of him. Well, with how much you sulked in the car on the way here, I thought you'd be the first one waiting by the exit, tutted Johnny's father. Sorry, Dad, I'm, I'm coming. Johnny opened his mouth to say something else, but he didn't know where to begin. Dragging his eyes away from the photograph, he headed for the door. <laughs>